Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of the Bay Street Capital Holdings podcast titled, How Do You Do It and Why Should I Care? This series aims to highlight women doing amazing work in various industries. So today we are so lucky to be joined by Kim Hamer, who is author of 100 Acts of Love. Hi, Kim. Lovely to have you on the show. Hi, so great to be here. So I guess we can start off with a quick um, introduction as to who you are and perhaps a main answer to the question of the podcast, which is how do you do it and why should I care? So um, why should you care? So first of all, I help individuals, managers, and HR leaders understand how to be more effective with employees affected by cancer. And most of the time when we hear about a cancer diagnosis from our friend, we don't feel good. We feel scared for them. We want to do something that shows them how much they care, how much we care about them. Mm. And oftentimes we end up actually saying one of the least helpful things you can say, which is, if you need anything, let me know. And I'll explain a little bit more about why that's the least helpful thing. But one of the reasons I started on this journey or the reason I started on this journey was because my husband had cancer twice. And then at the age of 44, he died. And our children at the time were 12, 9, and 7. And something I noticed during his both his cancer entanglements, because I don't refer to them as battles, and after he died, was people, some people knew exactly what to do, and they did these small little things that were so deeply helpful. And some other people didn't know what to do. And they just sort of went through this panic. And sometimes they did things that were not helpful. Sometimes they said things that were actually borderline mean. And I know that they didn't mean to at the time, but I also recognize that they didn't know what to do. And one of the things that happened during this period is I started calling these things that people did for us acts of love because that's what they felt like. You know, they would be like, here, let me pick up your kids from school. That's an act of love. Here's a meal. Here's an act of love. Let me fill your car with gas. It's an act of love. And so a few years after my husband died, I sat down and wrote down many of the things that people did for us that were really, really helpful. And then I took a deep dive actually into a little bit of psychology about why we say things that are not helpful when we're really trying to be helpful. And from that sprang my book, 100 Acts of Love, A Girlfriend's Guide to Loving Your Friend Through Cancer and Loss, and my website, also 100 Acts of Love. So why should you care is because how you show up for your friend who is dealing with whatever tragedy it is, it doesn't have to be cancer or death, but one of those major life hiccups, how you show up really, really matters to them. And I'm in a testament to that because I don't think I'd be here without the small and wonderful things that people did for us um, during that really difficult time in our lives. How wonderful that, you know, that book came out of, uh, you know, your friends helping you out. And I'm just curious because it doesn't seem like you kind of expected to write a book. So I'm curious what inspired you to sort of write your book and what made you want to sit down and write about these 100 acts of love? That is so, that's a really good question. I mean, I joke that I wrote the book for myself mm. because if I had been my friend who was watching you know, me going through this tragedy, I would not have known what to say or what to do. But I, I really can't even um, pinpoint the moment where I said, oh my God, I have to write this down. But I started, I kept a blog during both my husband's uh, cancer battles and uh, entanglements. And so at that point, I started writing little tips and saying, hey, I could really use this and hey, I could really use that. And then what happened is people started showing up. And I think somewhere around year four or five after he died, I just had this, it was almost like a, you know, like I just had to get it out of me. 
but I was terrified. I didn't think I was an author. I didn't, you know, my, my, my dad was an author. My mom was a writer, but I didn't consider myself a writer at all. And so mm-hmm. what I started to do to break it down in chunk sized pieces is I started writing for 17 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. I set a timer. 15 felt too short. 20 felt way overwhelming. So I set a timer for 15, for 17 minutes every day. And when that timer went off, especially in the beginning, I would stop writing, even if I was mid-sentence. And what I found was even ending mid-sentence allowed me to pick it up. And, and, um, and it, was, it, was, it wasn't done in my head. So when I went back to it the next day, I could pick it up and start writing. So I actually wrote the book in these 17-minute increments. Wow. And when I started to get into it, sometimes they were like 20 minutes or 23 minutes, but rarely did I ever get past like 34, 35 minutes of writing. Um, so that's how I wrote the book. That's really interesting. And I'm very surprised that you stopped after 17 minutes each time, because usually people would say, oh, finish your sentence or finish your train of thought before you stop. But I guess that kind of enables you to come back to the book the next day and just feel like you have something to say and continue writing and then get back into the flow of things. Yeah. And and I knew myself well enough to know that if I got to a, even to this day, when I finish something, even if it's not finished, I feel like I'm done and it's really hard for me to re-engage with, mm-hmm. with whatever I'm writing. If I'm in the middle of something and I stop mid-sentence especially, it's easier for me to engage. Um, so this whole notion of completion was actually worked backwards for me. I couldn't, the idea of completing something really overwhelmed me. Um, so if I stopped mid-sentence or midway through, it really helped me kind of get to the point where it was completed. Yep. Oh, awesome. And um, following on from that, as you mentioned, your mom and dad were both kind of creative writers and writers. I'm curious, other than that, what were the best resources that helped you along the way when you were writing your book? You know, I did it very, very much on my own. But then when I got to what I thought was the final draft, I invited four friends over and uh, they, I put the book up on Google Sheets and they made comments and we sat down. We did this for several weekends in a row. We sat down and they helped me edit the book. Um, for about two hours or three hours a stretch. And so things that I thought were so clear, because in my head, I knew exactly what I was saying, right? Or what, what I meant by that saying. And they were like, I don't understand this. Why would you put this here? Why would you put that there? They asked a lot of questions. And they also really encouraged me to dive deeper into my story. Because I think what happens is my story is my story. And, uh, and after a while, it becomes part of me. So I don't think of it as a big deal. Like, I I know that when I told some of you all that my husband died at the age of 44, there's a moment of shock, Mm -hmm. you know, like, oh my gosh, he was so young and your kids were so young. But for me, since it's part of my story, it's not a big deal anymore. And so they really encouraged me to talk more about my story and to be really honest about why I was writing that book and what this drive was, Um, because otherwise I would have kind of glossed over that part of it. Mm, okay that's really interesting and following on from that I guess this experience definitely cropped up on you as unexpected but were there any lessons that you wish you'd have known before starting to write your book yes um to have more courage I don't know if there's something that you can teach yourself to have more courage Mm. um I think the thing I would have done was rely more on friends people Mm. kept telling me it was a really good idea and you need to do it and I just kind of I poo-pooed them outright sometimes, you know, because I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that I had something to say that was worth putting in a book. Um, 
I feel very grateful that I was able to stick with my, with my um, vision. So one of the things I did about, with the book was I wanted to make it really easy and accessible. So the tips are these, there's, you know, 53, buy her a gas card. This, this chapter is all about the car help, yeah. you know, offer to register her car. So I wanted it to be a book where someone goes, Oh my gosh, what do I do? What do I do? And they open it up and it says, you know, say you were not alone. Mm-hmm. Right. And then it gives a little explanation. So um, I'm very grateful that I stuck. That image was very clear in my head from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so I'm very grateful that I stuck with that. And I think the other piece of advice I would have given myself um, probably was to just do it. There were so many things I had, so many stories I told in my head about what was going to happen when the book, when I did the book and that I didn't have enough tips to put in the book and why was there going to be a hundred? There was so many fear thoughts in my head. And the problem with fear thoughts, I find this for everyone, is they sound just like us and they sound really reasonable. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's hard to distinguish between what is a fear thought and what is an actual good caution to take. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. And um, following on from that, you know, what would you say was your biggest failure when writing this book? And what did you learn from it? Uh, my biggest failure was waiting for Oprah to discover it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it's beautiful. It's really well done. She's going to discover it. And then my life is going to be great. Right. So yeah. So she hasn't discovered it yet. And that's because so my biggest failure was not thinking about the marketing that I was going to do around it. Mm-hmm. Um, was, was, and, and I still, and actually I'm just now really embracing it, um, about calling attention to it and about saying, this is why you need this book. And it's so important. Um, so I think that's my biggest failure was sort of thinking that this was going to be a magic pill. And then I was going to write, you know, publish this book and Oprah was going to discover it. And I was going to get on the Oprah show and I was going to sell a million copies and life was going to be good. And, um, there are a million stories out here. Like every one of us has a story that deserves attention and time and, and for people to, to pay attention to because there's a lesson in them. But we have to do our job of making sure that people know about that story and can tell that story for you, you know, in the marketplace. So I think that's the biggest lesson that I learned and that I would do over again for sure. Oh, you never know. There's still time for Oprah to discover it. So hold up hope, I definitely would say. I'm, um, I'm making my way there. Yeah. Um, following on from that, what would you say is one common myth about writing a book or writing your book specifically that you would like to debunk? Um, I think that you have to do it all at once. I mean, this mm-hmm. book took me a year to write at 17 minute increments. Mm-hmm. I didn't do it all, all the time. So there's this myth that um, to be a writer, you have to write a book, you have to be a writer. I'm not a writer. I just really don't consider myself a writer. I am good at giving people directions. You should do this. And so that's where this book came from. Um, I think that's the biggest myth. I think the other biggest myth is that, is that it needs to be like, we have these images of what a book is. And like I said, this book was very clear to me about this image and people kept saying, no, you need to do it this way. And I kept holding on to, this is what I want it to be like, you know, I want Mm -hmm. it to be sort of a coffee table book. Mm -hmm. And so being really clear on what your image is and what you, the vision you have for that and just stay true to that. I think that's, 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 those are the, those are the, those are the things that are really difficult, but that are, um, that I think sometimes people like there's this myth that you have to be a writer or you have to have some type of message. When I started this, I didn't have a message. 
Oh, well, you know what? Actually, that's the best way to start with a clear mind and just have that, you know, canvas to sort of write your own book. Yep. I I will say this, that it's exactly, and it's trust the process. Yeah. I I didn't have a message until I realized I was calling it 100 acts of love because was when I was writing these things that people had done or things that I wish people had done or stories that I heard that, you know, someone had done for a friend, I uh, realized, oh, these are acts of love. That's Mm -hmm. all these are. And once that, once that happened, I was just trusting the process of writing down the tips. And then all of a sudden that's where the name came from. That's great. And more about you, because I'm curious, what have you read or listened to recently that's really inspired you? Oh my God. So I am into Brene Brown's um, podcast on, um, oh, I mean, I'm going to look it up right now. She has two podcasts on Spotify and I have listened to and re-listened to her podcast. I think it's Dare to Lead podcast. Yep. Mm-hmm. And really super, super powerful. Not because um, but the, she, she's her, her podcasts are resource rich. Um, and so I find them, you know, I'm able to pick things out and look up studies from things that she said and follow people and really do more research because I've often, I am not a psychologist, a psychiatrist, uh, you know, a doctor of anything. And I, and I talk about these feelings of, of when I, well, actually let's, let's talk really right now. Let's talk about why you don't say, if you need anything, let me know. Mm -hmm. The number one reason you don't say that is because you're putting the pressure on the person who is under great amount of stress to figure out one, what you mean by anything, right? If you offered that to me, or if I offered it to you, you know, do you know that I mean, did I mean that I would take care of your child if you have one? Did I mean that I would sit with your dying mother? Um, Did I mean that I would just get you, pick you up a gallon of milk, right? So anything is too big a word to wrap anyone's head around. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when you say that you're asking me to break down my day into bite-sized pieces. Mm. And, you know, we don't normally go around going, Hey, I'd like some toothpaste. So I'm brushing my teeth. I'm almost out of soap and I could use some laundry detergent because I need to wash my clothes or I really need a housekeeper because my house is filled with like, we don't go around thinking that way. Mm-hmm. And so when you say, if you need anything, you're then not only you say, you know, asking me to figure out what anything is to you, but now you're asking me to take, break down my day in bite-sized pieces to figure that out. And third is let's say just by chance, I know the thing that I need And now you're asking me to have the courage when I am feeling under a great amount of stress, extremely vulnerable, my life is falling apart. Mm -hmm. You're asking me to have the courage to ask you to do something that you may not want to do. And I have to risk your either going, I kind of not really wanted wanted to do that rejection or you're not doing it at all. There's no way that I'm going to call you with that one thing. And psychologically, we offer this because sometimes we we don't we we're we're nervous about getting close. We're nervous about connecting on that empathetic level. Mm. And so if we say we can do anything, then that allows us to take a step back and we get to be action oriented because anything is like gallon of milk, wash the car, right? It's action oriented. Yeah. Action to us feels so much better than sitting inside the grief or the, the difficulty. But in reality, that is how we connect. 
That's actually what drives us feeling connected to each other. And so with Brene Brown, I, I knew that instinctually that was what it was, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And now all of a sudden she's offering me studies that show that is exactly, you know, how we connect and why it's so important. So um, that's so that's why I'm into her podcast right now. I've listened to them all. I go back. I listen to them once. I've gone back and listened to several of them, taken lots of notes. I've gone back and listened to a third time and, and pulled the research that she talked about. Um, so it's, I find them very inspiring for me where I am right now in my building my business. That's great. And um, as you mentioned, you had very many people who you could rely on um, due to the unfortunate circumstances with your husband. But um, wh- who are three people in your life who are the most influential to you? And, you know, I saw that you had me this question and I was like, I don't know. Um, I know. I'm sorry. It had to only be three people. I'm sure. No, no, no. <laughs> Um, I have to say, as I as my children get older, my husband died 12 years ago. So as my children get over, and I know this is sort of a stock answer, but it really is watching my children navigate the world dealing with grief. Um, because what I've noticed they have done is they are vulnerable in really key moments. Um, I, I used to tell them that they find that, you know, that all our hearts are dented and we often find people with the same sort of dents. And so they're able to find people who have lost a parent and they they gain these really close and intimate friendships with these people. Um, their hearts are so deeply big because of their experience. And I watched um, I watched my my both my sons you know, really come to the aid of someone who had lost a, a sibling mm-hmm. um, or come to the aid to pe- of people who were feeling lost, you know, just themselves and, and give them a space to express that loss. And so those, I mean, if I had, you know, I could say Langston Palace and Ezra, but I won't count those as I'll count those as one. So I think yeah. those are my children. Um, I think really people who inspire me are there's a woman who um, her name is Michelle Neff Hernandez, and she started something called Soaring Spirits International, which is a widow's group. And she started doing something called Camp Widow. And and it is a camp for widows who are mostly under 50. Mm. And I remember the first time I went, I was absolutely terrified. I went by myself like I didn't know very many other young widows. And I walked into the room and I remember feeling this great amount of relief um, just, just, just disappear because I didn't have to tell my story. I didn't have to deal with the, oh my God, that's so horrible. All those things that made me feel other and different from people. I got to walk in the room and I noticed that everyone in there had the same story. And so she really inspired me to, to do the same thing, but to do it for people who want to support their friends. Because oftentimes people who want to support their friends are also feeling isolated and they don't know what to do. And they have all these questions. They just want to be in a room with other people mm-hmm. or they go, I tried. And someone goes, oh my God gosh, me too. And this is what they said. So she really inspired me. Um, and then I think the other person who really inspired me is, um, I, I, I have a mentor, um, a spiritual mentor, spiritual guide, and the woman who got me to him really inspired me because she lives out loud. Um, so what she did was 
I remember I didn't know her very well, but I called her the day before my husband died. It was very clear that he was dying. We were in the hospital and I had spent all this time in the hospital room with him. And I needed to get out because um, people kept visiting and no one who I knew had visited had had any experience like this. And she had told me a, long, a while ago that her husband had died, that her father had died. And I just felt this gentleness about that comment that she made. And I called her and we went out to lunch and it was just the sweetest, kindest moment. And I realized then that she she lived very open with her heart very open. And I had I wanted to live like her. And it took me years and I'm still trying to live like her. Um, but to be honest and open and frank and vulnerable, like she was just so openly vulnerable. And so she's she's the third person who really inspires me, especially as I build this business. She's built a separate business on um, around a different topic, but I watch her build that business. And I, I, you know, I, I watch her, you know, I want to be like her and, and live like her. So those are the three or six or five people who really inspire me the most. Amazing. And then finally to round up our conversation for the day, what is one piece of advice that you wish you gave yourself at any point in your life? <sighs> you know, I'm so, this is so not, you know what? I'm going to do this one. Be vulnerable. Like, and stop judging the feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, I have stopped myself from doing so many things because of my, not because of the feeling I had about doing it, but because I judged the feeling I had about it. So if I was feeling scared, I judged the fear as you're not good enough. You don't, you're not brave enough. You're just not doing it well. You can't do it. So I judged it that way instead of honoring, yeah, I'm scared. Like, I'm really scared and I don't know what's going to happen and I'm just going to go for it anyway. So I think that's the advice I would have given myself, my 18-year-old self, um, just to, you know, like, not to judge the feelings. The feelings are just feelings. They are not right. They are not wrong. They are just feelings. And I went through a large part of my life being the judge, jury, and executioner based on the feelings that I had and judging them as wrong or bad or scary and not taking action because of that. Well, yes, a very important message. So thank you once again, Kim, for taking the time to speak with me today. Our conversation was so enlightening and just very, very engaging overall. Well, thank you. I'm so honored to be here. I'm so honored to be have been asked. I really appreciate everything that you're doing. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. All right, then. Take care.